great song. This morning we celebrate the greatest, the most fantastic, the most wondrous event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hear the bells ringing, they're singing that we can be born again. Hear the bells ringing, they're singing that Christ has risen from the dead. I'm so glad we sang that song, Hallett. Thank you so much. My job is actually quite easy this morning because I don't need to be very creative or entertaining or funny, uh, which is a lot of work for me, (laughs) because my duty really is to tell God's story. This is His great story, His great masterpiece, His great rescue plan, and it doesn't need any embellishment from me. And so I want to do four things this morning. I want to recount the event. I want to rehearse the facts. I want to describe the implications, and I want to challenge all of us to respond in faith. Just a few scriptures to get us going this morning. I want to read Romans 10, the last part of verse 8 through 10. This is the message which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Another great verse, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then that beautiful uh, statement from Jesus himself when doubting Thomas finally surrendered to the living Christ after Jesus showed him his scarred body, his resurrection scars. Thomas cried out, my Lord and my God. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us, people. How many want to say, I believe? I I am blessed. We have a chance this morning to be supremely happy, supremely blessed as we marvel at the wonder of God's story, His rescue mission to celebrate and believe in the great wonder of the resurrection. So let's get started recounting the event, shall we? Let's turn to Matthew 28, 1 through 17. Matthew 28, 1 through 17. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. 
And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Father, we pray that you would open our minds and hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to drink more deeply of the resurrection story, the resurrection event, resurrection reality than we ever have in the past. Father, hear our prayers. Help us to be absolutely submitted to you and your word and your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So... In chapter, uh, excuse me, this passage that we just read, in verse 8, it says that the Marys were uh, fearful and had great joy at the same time. In Mark, we read that astonishment and fear gripped them. In the Luke account, Luke describes uh, Peter running to the tomb. And in John, we read about a foot race, actually, between John and Peter. And John arrives there first, but Peter goes in and looks at the the grave claws. And then John comes in and he says, at that moment, he believed. But actually, I want you to realize that the disciples were actually very slow to believe. They didn't believe just by seeing the empty tomb. They, they had these emotions of fear and amazement and marveling, but they didn't believe at that point. Let's look at some, some passages to that effect. Luke twenty four eleven, And these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. John 20, verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must again rise from the dead. And Mark 16, 14, when Jesus 
entered the room in his resurrected form where all the disciples were together except Thomas, he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. As the saying goes, seeing is believing. And the apostles needed to see the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, not just one of them, but as a group before they would believe. They were amazed, they were astonished, but they were not fully convinced until they saw his body. There were at least 11 resurrection appearances, and Paul recounts several of them in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just read those to you. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then Luke records uh, a verse as well. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. We were talking in our class this morning about how the word apostle means one sent with a commission. And um, so the apostles, what was their commission? Who can tell me? What was their commission? As the, why are they called apostles? Yeah, because their, their job was to go throughout the world as eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When they replaced Judas in Acts 1, that was the qualification. Someone who has been with us the whole time and has seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.32 saying, This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And later he wrote this verse, which I really love. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty. So this was the event that we have read and said a few things about. Let's turn now and talk about some of the facts or proofs or evidences of the resurrection. Because as we recited in worship, our faith rests on this event, doesn't it? That it really happened, that we aren't fooling ourselves. Well, I want to talk about three evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the first is the preponderance of fulfilled prophecy. Jesus could not fulfill prophecy, all this prophecy about himself, even if he wanted to. Look at some of these uh, prophetic statements from the Old Testament. His birth would be in Bethlehem. His crucifixion would be with criminals. The piercing, his hands and feet would be pierced. Soldiers would gamble for his clothing. His side would be pierced. Bones, his bones would not be broken at death. 
and his burial would be among the rich. Well, these verses don't deal a whole lot with the resurrection, but more with the crucifixion. Still, I want to point out that his life and his death uh, were clearly prophesied and he clearly fulfilled them. We also have his own words. Destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and they will be raised up on the third day. And in Matthew 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the sea. After the resurrection, the apostles saw predictions of the resurrection in the Old Testament. On the day of Pentecost, Peter cites Psalm 16, 9 through 11, where it talks about God's anointed will not see decay. Also, in Isaiah 53, 9, we read, His grave will be with the wicked, and his death will be with the rich. Isn't that an interesting Old Testament prophecy referring, of course, to the crucifixion with the criminals and yet his uh, death being in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. And the last one is one I had never seen before. In fact, I don't think the apostles refer to it as far as I know. But listen to Hosea 6.2 or read it with me. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Jesus and his resurrection fulfilled prophecy. A second evidence, of course, is the empty tomb and the fact that no one has ever contested that the tomb was empty. We read that it was made extremely secure in Matthew 27, starting in verse 57. Let's take a look at that. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And when Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave, now on the next day, when, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Let's take a look at that 
This is a depiction of what a, a seal across an ancient stone might look like. It's being drawn from Daniel 6, verse 17, where uh, Daniel is in the lion's den, and the king has the lion's den sealed with a huge stone and signet rings going into wax on either side. The stone was usually large and circular, rolled into a V-shape trough. Mark says the stone was exceedingly great. Matthew calls it a great stone. Peter says the stone was great. Uh, the guard was usually a group of four soldiers, but could be as many as 30. Failure of duty usually meant death. And then we have the seal, as you see there. The English New Testament scholar John A.T. Robinson wrote what you see there on the screen. The sealing was done in the presence of the Roman guard who were left in charge to protect this stamp of Roman power and authority. They did their best to prevent theft and in this, and in this case, the resurrection. So, along with a very secure tomb, here's what we can surmise from the accounts. We can surmise that there were at least three women, four guards, and two disciples who examined the empty tomb. The Jews, religious and secular historians, liberal and non-biblical scholars, biblical scholars, the disciples, no one has questioned or contested that the tomb was empty. The tomb of Christ has never been venerated. If his bones were there, you can guess that it would be venerated. It would be a historic uh, place of worship where people would go, but no one goes there. The fact is, all anyone ever had to do to disprove the resurrection was to produce his bones. No one has ever claimed to. And you'll have to forgive me, but I love this quote, Confucius's tomb occupied, Buddha's tomb occupied, Muhammad's tomb occupied, Jesus's tomb empty. <laughs> Hallelujah. One final point, the apostles went to great pains to reassure future believers that they themselves were telling the truth and not lying. John, in the midst of his account of the crucifixion and the resurrection, he said this, and I have seen this, I who have seen this bear witness, and my witness is true. And I know that I am telling the truth so that you also may believe. The empty tomb has never been contested. But a third uh, evidence, I think, for the resurrection, in my mind, is really the most powerful. And that is the transformed lives of the apostles. Even, and even countless individuals up to our own day, including some of us, right? Some of us, all of us, radical transformation. You've heard the saying, the proof is in the pudding. And uh, consider 
the putting of transformed lives. Let's talk about the apostles first. You know, there was no payoff for them, no earthly payoff anyway, for them to live the rest of their lives and die horrible deaths for Jesus Christ. There was no mansion on the Mediterranean or 70 virgins waiting for them in paradise. They knew that they were witnesses to a fact of history. They weren't making an argument. They weren't living for an argument. They were, weren't testifying to a philosophy. That wouldn't have been strong enough to hold them. They, they were witnessing to a, uh, what do we call it? Uh, a miracle, thank you, honey. <laughs> the miracle of the resurrection. They devoted the rest of their lives, their fortunes, their families, where they lived, how they died to this event we call the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They endured torture and martyrdom. Unbelievable things happened to them. Just a, I'll mention just a few. The Apostle John, uh, it said that he was boiled alive but survived. Bartholomew was skinned alive and crucified in agony. Matthew was burned alive, probably, though there's some uncertainty. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James, the son of Alphaeus, probably his brains were dashed out by a club. Thomas was martyred with a spear in India and Matthias stoned to death, and then beheaded by the Jews in Jerusalem, and the list goes on. This question of would they die for a lie, to me, is the strongest evidence that this event was a true and real miracle. We could talk about other transformed lives. Let's think of the Apostle Paul a Pharisee of Pharisees, enjoying that status. And then he meets the Lord on the Damascus Road, and, and he, after that he says, I am nothing. I am the least, the last of the apostles because I persecuted Christ and his followers. We could think of the many intellectual atheists and uh, skeptics who've surrendered to Christ like C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Francis Collins, Lee Strobel, St. Augustine, and others. And then there's your own personal testimony, our own, my own personal testimony, where we have been in the arms of the Lord. And we know that He exists and that he's alive, and that he's personally reached out and saved us. That we matter to him, and we're his <clears throat> sacred possession. To me, this transformed lives are a huge testament to the reality of the resurrection, and it's a power that's still on the loose in the world today. Hallelujah. This ragtag bunch of men 
who Jesus chose to be his apostles. They were fishermen. They were the tax collector. They were men of low rank. The women, some of the women, had sordid pasts. But in just a few years, the Jews of Thessalonica, when Paul and Silas came to their city, they would riot. And what did they say? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms lives. Well, let's move to what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does it mean if the life, death, and burial of Christ was all God's plan, all foretold, executed, and validated by the resurrection of Christ? What does it, what does it all mean? Well, first of all, it means that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and now is King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone is the sovereign King of the universe. He's preeminent. He's supreme. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to the glory of God the Father. He sets the rules and defines the terms. Anything in the earth and under the earth and over the earth are under His control. And He alone, He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. All other so-called gods or religions are but paper, mache, pretenders, and idols. He will not share His glory with another, He says. And rightly, it's been said that all other religions are man's attempt to reach out to God. But Christianity is God's plan to reach sinful man. To be obedient and surrendered to this one true God, we have to embrace His story, His plan, His reality, His way. As Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. The first implication is that He is Savior and Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Secondly, it means that if we embrace Him as our Savior and Lord, we are no longer in our sins. Hallelujah for that. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Hallett tried to steal my sermon there, but I'm not going to let him. If he rises from the dead, he validates that he has the authority to forgive sins. He went on to say that we've been set free from sin. In uh, Romans 5, let me read just a little bit to you. This is Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in chapter 6, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Aren't you glad that you are no longer in your sins? The power of sin has been broken. You are free not to sin. Whereas before, we were enslaved to that principle of sin. Third, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's Son, means that we matter to God and that He really, really loves us. By saying we matter to God, I'm not wanting our focus to be or our conclusion to be that we are so valuable that God just had to send Jesus to save us. No. We're valuable because He loves us so much and because He went to such a great length to rescue us. Can you say amen to that with me? It's all Him. It's all Him, and we want to give Him the glory. He has chosen to love us. He just flat out loves us with a perfect and everlasting love. He knows your name, and He loves you. We matter to the heart of God, and this love has been demonstrated in this big story the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We matter to God. He loves us. He loves you. I am a representative of, of God right now. And I'm telling you, He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He's crazy about you. He loves you. And He wants you to live with Him forever. So, now it's quiz time. Who is this person? Huh? Yeah, you, you can't play. No. Yes, this is Mike Lindell, the pillow man, my pillow, my pillow guy. Um, we were talking about transforming lives. Um, I, I heard how his life has been transformed, not by his business, but do you know that uh, this picture was taken uh, about 10 years ago when his three, the three top uh, cocaine dealers in Minneapolis where he lived decided to come to him as one and cut him off from his cocaine because he, he was killing himself. And he, this whole time, he, he believed in God, but um, he, didn't, he hadn't really surrendered to God. And he still had this cocaine habit. And unbelievably, these dealers came to him and said, we're cutting you off 
and we're going to take a picture of you right now. You look so bad uh, because someday you're going to write a book and we want you to have this picture for your book. And uh, so uh, at that time, about a month later, he uh, got free of the cocaine addiction. But he, he would say that he has, did not really surrender to Christ until February of 2017. Even though he's been wearing a cross for years, even though he's been preaching, he was preaching the whole time he was a cocaine addict. He believed in God. He was telling his drug friends and everybody that they needed Christ. But apparently back in February of 17, a very discerning woman of God looked him in the face and said, I know you haven't fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And so he did at that moment. A tremendous tri uh, transformed life. Look at him now. He's, uh, he looks good there. I think I had another... Oh, so here he is at the U.S. Uh, US Bank Stadium in Minneapolis about a year ago. He, he and some other collaborators hosted a huge pillow fight in U.S. Bank Stadium. He had 50,000 pillows ready to go. I think there were maybe only, I don't know how many, 20,000 people, I'm guessing. But anyway, they, were, there were, they had a huge pillow fight, and the Guinness World Book of Records people were there trying to count people, and they did win. I mean, now they're in the Guinness World Book of for the biggest pillow fight. But after the pillow fight, he got down on his knees and he said, I'm going to say a prayer right now. I'm, I pray that somebody out there, that Jesus touch him tonight. And if you've got any prayers, Lord, make these pillows that people take home their prayer pillow. That they will lay on them and never forget this night and that they will pray to you, Lord, and ask you into their heart and surrender. Surrender to you, Jesus. And we pray for the addicts, anybody addicted out there, that stories of hope like mine will change the world and change our country. We pray for peace. We pray for our country. We pray for our state. We just pray, Lord. We reach out to you. We ask for, please forgive our sins, Lord. Forgive us and listen to our prayers tonight, Lord. And I want everybody to say a prayer of peace tonight, a prayer on their pillow. In Jesus' name, amen. Then I guess he held a pillow toward God and said, Woo! something like that. And the prayer was complete. A transformed life. Hallelujah. The scriptures say, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will quicken your mortal bodies also. The last implication of the resurrection is that it seems God's greatest desire is 
that we would spend eternity with him. I want to ask you, what, what kind of God makes spending eternity with us his end game? I don't, I don't know, I haven't heard of any other God where that's his end game. Is, I don't know if it's his greatest desire, but I, c- I couldn't quite put greatest because I can't presume to know God's greatest desire. But his great desire is that we spend eternity with him. I'll tell you what kind of a God he is. He is an insanely loving God. He's an unimaginably personal God. He's a God of incredible intimacy, a father-hearted kind of God who will literally fight to the death to rescue his sons and daughters from the jaws of Satan himself, that he might hold us close to himself forever and ever and ever O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. To close, I want to ask you this question. After hearing the resurrection story, God's great story, his life, his death, his resurrection, what more would God have to do to demonstrate that he loves you? What more could he do to demonstrate to you that he loves you and that you matter to him and that he wants you to be with him through all eternity. What more does he have to do? Will you receive him and his great love for you today? This is his great purpose and plan, his great masterpiece, his great work of love, will you respond in faith to the wonder of the resurrection? The Bible says, for all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. I want to ask you to bow your heads now. We're going to pray. And... um, I want to remind you of John 20, 29, that verse that says, Supremely happy are those who have not seen and yet believe. Maybe you would like to be supremely happy today. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Maybe you're here today and you have believed in God for a long time. But that's not enough, is it? 
we've got to surrender like Mike Liddell, Lindell, we've got to surrender and open our heart to Jesus Christ to work on us from the inside out and to live for him. We also have to be willing to take a stand and confess that Jesus is our Lord. And so as a way of doing that, I want to invite any who have never perhaps made the good confession, never publicly said I am surrendering to Jesus Christ today. I want to ask you to stand. I will not ask you to do anything more, but I do think it's important that you be willing to be recognized and to stand as a statement that I surrender to Jesus Christ. The Bible says now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Is there anyone who would like to stand for the first time in their life and surrender to Jesus Christ? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, if there are any who are praying this in their chair, we pray that you would just move mightily that you would rescue them, that you would hear their prayer, their prayer of surrender, Lord. And we love you and honor you in Jesus' name. Now, if you've known the Lord and yet you would like to commit to him afresh and just say, here I am, Lord, I rejoice in your victory and I want all of you that I can possibly have, I surrender to you, I open my heart to you, would you stand with me, and uh, let's, let's pray together. Thank you, Father. Lord, we thank you for your great victory. We thank you for your big story, your big rescue mission. We praise you that we have joined our lives with you, that you have saved us, that you came and died a horrible death took on your back our sins and set us free from the law of sin and death. Father, thank you for filling us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your power that could not be contained in the grave. Lord, it's a mystery to us, but it's wonderful. And so we respond in faith, Lord, to the wonder of your resurrection. Give us a great day, Lord, a great week. Help us to share the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere we go, Lord. Help us to bring an encouraging word. Help us to tell people that you love them. Help us to share the gospel more fully. And we just praise you and give you all the glory for today. In Jesus' name, amen.